Good morning, everyone. Today I'm going to be reading the Bible. I'm going to be reading two passages, um, Exodus 32, verse 1 to 14, and Psalm 115, verse 1 to 11, starting at Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are our gods, Israel, who brought us up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are stiff-necked. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favour of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was the evil intent that he brought them into, brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be inheritance forever." Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster that he had threatened. And the next reading is Psalm 115, verse 1 to 11. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory, because of your love and faithfulness. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. But their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. All you Israelites, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. House of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. You who fear him, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. The Lord remembers us and will bless us. He will bless his people Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, small and great alike. Good morning, everyone. Great to be back. Thank you. Waiting and delays lingering and inaction and little clarity, 
Words to describe some of the most frustrating and uncertain times in our lives. This year has thrown a spanner in the works to this God of comfort and control that we love. I'm sure you've been there. You know, waiting for the paperwork on a house to go through, unsure if you'll have a job for next year, waiting for the test results, praying for your daughter or friend for so long, and there's still nothing changes. Our culture isn't actually built to wait well, if we're honest. Even the delay in your coffee in the morning and a croissant at the cafe is just sometimes all too much to actually bear. Or, if you're like my son, this week he started asking every day, is it Christmas, Dad? <laughs> to which I say, no, you have to wait just a little bit longer. Which is why Exodus 32, actually, is so relevant to us today. The waiting gets all too much for God's people. They crack. And they end up doing what you and I do. And it gives birth to one of the most spiritually dull, low, sad moments of their entire existence as a nation. In fact, the rest of the Bible appeals to this as a low point. Well, waiting certainly isn't a sin, but it is one of the most difficult expressions of our faith. Why? Why is that? I think it's because waiting makes us feel fragile. And it's when we're fragile, we're prone to behave unfaithfully, to turn to sin as a way of escape and release or rescue from the waiting just like in Exodus 32. And here it all happened because God wasn't doing what they wanted him to do. The fogginess of what's next, you know, Moses up on the mountain, not coming back down as quickly as they wanted, no clarity on the next steps, what do we do? And so they do what we do, they exchange God. They exchange God. This is the sin of idolatry, and thank you to Meredith's Kids Talker introduced it really well for us. To put it simply, idolatry is the great exchange that we make of God for other things. And we do this because we want to make God manageable. We want to see him. We want God in a box. We want a God who will do what we want him to do, when we want him to do, in the way we want him to do, Because waiting on God isn't, frankly, on my or your to-do list when you wake up most days. So my big takeaway from this morning is this. All of us are tempted to exchange God for other things. Maybe you're tempted to do this today. All because God isn't delivering you from the life you want, in the way you want, at the pace you want. And you're tempted to do that. So let me show you why I think this is the point from our passage today. But not only that, show you how God responds when his people do exchange him for something else. And what the solution is that they need and we need as well to this problem we have. Because there is one person who never exchanged the glory of God for an idol. Who always did the will and the work of God. 
And in doing so, this one was able to forgive and bring us back when we wander off and exchange God as well. And because this one gave himself on the cross, we can now respond by giving ourselves utterly, completely, wholly to God, living with an air of difference in how we wait as well. And maybe you're here today and you don't know this Jesus who I'm talking about. Well, come with me. Let me tell you about him and introduce you to him. I'd love nothing more because I know I'm so grateful to have a God who understands my fragile heart and mind and who meets me in all my waiting and all my wondering to win me back and woo him, me to himself. So a couple of points. If you've got the outline on the hub, great. If not, you can follow along on the screen for the key parts. Firstly, let's see what the people actually do. And that was the main part of our Bible reading today. So high on the mountain, 40 days, Moses, God, a great, calm, surreal, tranquil environment. 40 days of just heaven, maybe. But down below, the people aren't faring as well, are they? The days turn into weeks. Ever been there? The weeks turn into a month. And they grow impatient, wondering, is Moses ever going to come back? It's a good question. Middle East, in that time period, maybe a a lion ate him or he fell down and broke his hip and, you know, he's pretty old and we can't go up there to check on him, so... Verse 1 says, the people saw Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain. To say it another way, they're stuck. The people are stuck. They have no leader, which means they have no access to God, who goes before them. The problem right now is Moses is absent. So they do what you and me do. Impatience and fear overtakes them, so they take matters into their own hands. And we all get to a point like this, don't we? Might be one day, or 40 days, or three years, where we think, okay, enough is enough. God hasn't acted. I should now do something. Had enough. And notice too the collective voice of everyone in this passage. This is not just one guy kind of rebelling on his own. Words like the people, us, we, they all agree as a whole, things need to change. And what's that? We need a new leader and we need a new God. Verse 1 goes on. They gathered around Aaron and said, come make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, it's very derogatory, isn't it? Fellow Moses. He brought us out of Egypt. We don't know what's happened to him. And so Aaron famously asks for their gold jewelry. The gold they got from Egypt, by the way. Give me your earrings, everyone. I'll melt them into a, a, a gold. And the text is very explicit. He uses a tool to fashion a calf. And with one voice in verse 4, they all see this calf and they say, These are your gods who brought you up out of Egypt. It gets worse, too, because Aaron's not done. He sees this. He hasn't said anything yet, by the way. And he declares, hey, guys, tomorrow, let's have a a, a feast to the Lord. What do you say about that? It's syncretism at its finest, isn't it? Believers mixing their faith with the idols of culture because the promise of power and relevance is right there, and it's still our struggle today. But all it does is demonstrate how sin leads to more sin and how if you do follow this path, it just dilutes God, doesn't it? Because you're always getting less than the fullness of God in an idol. The people rise early, they sit down, 
offer a sacrifice, very orderly, very proper, following the laws and commands. And then they, they, they stand for the rest of the day, get up, it says, and they engage in a highly sexual and intoxicating pleasure in verse 5. You see, this waiting has led to a fragile heart, which led to an exchanging of God. Psalm 106 reflects on this many years later and says, they exchanged their glorious God, notice the contrast, a glorious God, for what? An image of a bull that eats grass. Verse 19 of Psalm 106. They forgot, it says, the God who saved them, who had done great things. The waiting pushed away any memory of God out their hearts. They forgot the God who saved them, who had done great things. So, waiting makes us fragile. Being fragile can push God out of our hearts and minds and lead us to exchange him for an idol. It has an air of pleasure to it, but it's certainly not freedom. Begs the question, what is God going to do with this stubborn group of people? Well, good question, everyone. That's the next point. This is what God sees, verse 7 to 10. He's a little jaded, actually. After all, he hasn't abandoned them. He's actually at work at this moment, giving Moses the rest of the covenant commands. This is how you're going to live with me. Moses, let's hang out for 40 days. Let's, let me tell you what life with me is like. They just have to wait. He's giving them more of their covenant, the hope of being with him. They saw the delay, but God was working behind the scenes. And yes, God does get angry at an idol. God even distances himself between himself and the people for the first time. Look at this in verse 7. Hey, Moses, your people, who you led out of Egypt, they've become corrupt. God doesn't say my people, he says your people. What the people see as a future with this idol, God sees as corruption. What does that mean? Well, five things from verses 8 to 9 about what corruption in God's eyes is. And notice the progression. Firstly, it's turning away from God's commands. Secondly, it's making an idol. It's then giving your time, talent, treasures to that idol, like bowing down to it and sacrificing to it. Corruption is then identifying, this God is the one who saved me. They saw these, they say, these gods led us out of Egypt. And then finally, corruption just sits there, being stiff-necked and stubborn to God's intention. You see, corruption is about a change of state, becoming something that's decaying. That's the idea of corruption here. And that happens when we exchange God for an idol. Imagine you're really thirsty, super thirsty. You're at the beach. And as the old saying goes from Homer Simpson, water, water everywhere, so let's all have a drink. And you pull out your cup and you have a big drink of salty water. And you wonder why you're really thirsty. So you do it again. And you wonder why you're really thirsty. Because an idol is like drinking salt water, hoping to find refreshment. But it's never going to work. But why is this a sin? Why can't God be nice and let them play with the idol for a little bit? You know, I mean, you could argue back to God and say, God, it's your fault. I mean, if you had just used Communication 101 and said to them, Team, 40 days, I'll be back. It would have avoided the whole problem. So it's, it could, you, it's God's fault. 
actually. To put it bluntly. But you see, idols deprive God of his proper glory. They reduce God, who is uncreated, to something that is limited, finite, making less, something less than God. We don't know why they made a cow. Lots of speculation. You can read hundreds of suggestions, but really, we just don't know. But what is clear? It's not God. <laughs> and so serious. God says, I'm going to annihilate them, like with Noah in the flood, right? Eh, let's get rid of him. Verse 10. How about I start over with Moses, the good one? It seems totally disastrous. What will Moses do here? Exactly what a mediator does. You see, when we chase idols, God's angry. And we need a mediator to stand before us and God to put things right. And the rest of this chapter is given over to Moses and what he does. There's a phrase in the Bible that appears 3,930 times. Any, any guesses to what it might be? It's two words that appear in the Bible. 3,930 times. What do you reckon it might be? Shout it out. Oh, no. Good guess, though. Good, 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 try, good try. No, I am. Any other suggestions? Sorry? Yes, but God. But God. It's like the fire engine coming around the corner with the sirens on. When there's trouble, but God. When things are going pear-shaped, but God. But we don't see that here. We have but Moses in verse 11. So is Moses this fire engine rescue hope that people need? Notice two things he says. He's quick to point out in verse 11 that he really didn't do much in rescuing them. You remember, it was God's mighty hand, he says, not him. So actually, God, it's your hand. You rescued them. They belong to you. So don't, don't try to pin me with them and say they're my people. I might be related to them by blood, but actually they're yours because you rescued them. Secondly, God, because they belong to you via a covenant that you made with Abraham, he appeals to Abraham now, in verse 13, God, remember that. Remember your word. And if you remember the word remember in Exodus, it has the idea of springing to action, of doing something, right? So remember your promise, spring into action based on that past promise to Abraham because, God, if everyone's dead, Egypt's going to laugh at you and you can't fulfill your very own word. Very important to see that Moses isn't appealing to the people's innate goodness. He doesn't say something like, God, they were having a bad day. 40 days is a long time to wait for anyone. You mean your son will know that? Well, he doesn't say that. But, you know, Jesus will know that and give him some slack here. Come on. Can't you see they were, they were you know, not really that too bad. They just made a bit of a, a slip up. See, he doesn't appeal to their goodness. Not that they have any, but he appeals to God's character and God's promise. He's asking God to make the future possible on the other side of rebellion and evil only because God can do that. Does it work? Verse 14, then the Lord relented. Here we see a God who is merciful and gracious. After when the situation changed, Moses interceding, God responded accordingly. And that, and that is a true sign of mercy. Well, we could say, 
But God shows his great love for them that while they were rebelling, his mediator stepped in to put things right. But there are still consequences for sin. So when Moses heads down the mountain and sees firsthand what's happening, he goes straight to the heart of the problem. He goes to the golden cow, and as Meredith uh, led us through before, he grabs it, he smashes it, he crushes it, he puts it in the water. He probably didn't make them line up, but scattered it in their water supply, and they would have drunk it. Being able to destroy your own God doesn't say much about its attributes, ability, power, strength, does it? Especially if you grind it to dust and drink it, it comes out of you. They were drinking and expelling their God. There's no trace of it. The calf is nothing more than a waste byproduct of their faulty hearts. In fact, when Moses calls it a great sin in verse 21, it has the idea of adultery behind it. That is, idolatry is spiritual adultery with God. After all, they've broken the covenant, willingly broken the covenant, willingly said, I'm in a relationship with God, I do everything you say, but I like the look of that, I'm just going to spend the night over here, God. Hope you're okay with it. And then Aaron's reply is just comical. He says, oh, Moses says, what are you doing? What, what, what did you do, Aaron? And, and Aaron says, oh, Moses... And just imagine this is a small child who you've caught red-handed or something like that. Oh, Moses, you know how prone these people are to evil. You know, I, I, they're evil. What is he saying? Not me. They said to me, make us gods who go before us. As for this fellow, Moses, who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him, implying that really it's your fault, Moses, that you delayed. So I told them, whoever has gold or jewelry, take it off. He did say that. Then they gave it to me. And I threw it in the fire and out came the calf. Like, which is why the text early is very explicit in saying he got a tool and fashioned it. Because then he says to Moses, it's, I kind of, I'm just standing here and it's your fault and their fault. I, I didn't really do anything. I just threw it in the fire and as I looked, there was a golden cow and what am, well, I just put it up there to dry off, I guess, and they worshipped it. No, I just said they have a feast of the law. You know. It's one of the most hilarious examples of sin and the, trying to get out of it we have in the Bible. And it shows us how sin works and we laugh at it. I mean, after all, Moses would, and, but it's full of half-truths. You see, sin doesn't often make us wickedly evil, violent. It just makes us half-hearted and fickle. Like I said, there are half-truths in there. Moses did know how evil they were. He's experienced it. They've rebelled against him before, right? He's making it sound like it's an accident. And then... It goes on, and Aaron, uh, Moses, we don't know what happens at that moment, but you get this sense of Moses almost shrugging his shoulders and going, oh, fine, you know, I'll, I'll deal with it. And he goes off in verse 25 to 29, and one of the most grisly scenes of Exodus appears. He calls the Levite tribe and says, guys, go and kill them, those who have worshipped this calf. 3,000 are destroyed. It's a shocking tale. It's a harsh one to digest, to read that. But you have to remember, and this shows you how horrible sin is, 
They broke the covenant with God. It shows you very clearly the wages of sin is death and how serious God indeed takes the matter to be. You simply can't be God's holy people and flirt with sin. They had earned its wage. And then the chapter ends with Moses being completely honest and open before God. He says in verse 32, sorry, please forgive their sin, but if not, then blot me out of your book, God. But you know what God says to Moses, the mediator, this time? Verse 33, 34, the Lord replies to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out the book. When the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them. Do you hear what God's saying? God will only punish the guilty. As one scholar says, Moses' death will not make things right because his actions did not make things wrong in the first place. To put it simply, Moses isn't suitable for that task. How could someone be both holy and just to offer themselves to God as a sacrifice for the people's sins of the mediator, yet represent and identify with the very same sinful people he's trying to mediate to? It's a bit of a pickle. But actually, this is where we find and meet Jesus Christ, and we find the great exchange that we actually need. Because all of us attempted to exchange God for something we hope will lead us in life. Seasons of waiting and doubt, delay, feeling stagnant in life, it makes us fragile. It makes us long for a golden cow of our own, right? After all, it's a short leap from the pages of Exodus 32 to our own hearts and church and life because the temptation is just as real today. I know in my life, when waiting happens like this, when I feel uncertainty and foggy and come to the end of myself, my default golden cow is a bit like a pity party. I seek solace, I try to find relief, I want to walk away from the problem, I look at other people's lives and other people's ministries and I think they have it together, I want to be like them and I sulk, God, why can't I be like that? Why haven't you done what you've done to them to me? Prayer becomes single-minded, reading the Bible is only a half-hearted attempt at best, and then I shut off from community, and I really cease to function as someone who truly says they follow God. Even though a week ago, I was like the people in here, happy to say we'll do everything God says. Because the temptation, when God isn't doing what I would like, is to run towards something that I think will make my life better, and comparing my life to other people is a really good way of doing that for me. What is it for you? You see, Exodus 32 causes us to look ahead to a greater mediator than Moses. One who can atone for us when we do break the covenant with God. That while I might be fragile about the future, like God's people, uncertain, there is a complete salvation and something truly better in Jesus because as Hebrews 7 verse 25 says, he's able to completely save those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Our second Bible reading was Psalm 115, and it makes the point that idols can't love or protect us in return. They are lifeless. Notice all the contrasts, I'm sure. They have eyes, but don't see. Hands, but don't feel. Mouths, but don't make a noise in their throat. They can't free us, and in the end, we have to serve them if we want life from them. 
But the Son of God came to serve us as a looking, loving, living, real, alive God. And he appealed to his own wounds and his blood before God, saying, Judge Luke by my wounds, not what's in his heart. And he says that to all of us, actually. So the question is, how do we wait well? Well, let's learn from the sin of Exodus 32, reminding ourselves, firstly, of the great mediator we have in Jesus Christ, reminding ourselves of the words of Psalm 115, that any other God will never deliver us with what we long for, that at best, any idol in this world is an echo of something more that you find in the uncreated God himself. So I want to finish on this. Will you join me this week? Echoing the words of Psalm 115, and I love the last few verses of words of 9, 10, and 11. And it smacks of a golden calf moment because it says, look, all ye Israelites, trust in the Lord. House of Aaron, Aaron who led them in this, right? Trust in the Lord. He is the help and the shield. Then it broadens it to all of us. You who fear him, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. So join me in trusting God with a fragile heart as we go into this week. I hope you will. Let's pray. Our great God, thank you that you see our hearts just as you saw the rebellion and evil in your people when you were on Mount Sinai and they were at the bottom with a golden calf. And, and God, we, we recognize and want to confess to you your holiness and justice and hatred of idolatry and sin in our lives. And we acknowledge that. And just as Moses tried to mediate a way out of this, Lord God, there is a better Moses who rescues us from all the gods and idols that we put in our hearts. Jesus Christ, your son, who is a sinless savior, who has a mind and eyes and a heart, who breathes and lives to always make intercession, to stand before you and me and appeal to his wounds as our way to be forgiven and cleansed. And so God, may we remember that. We squash idols with the greater joy of you. So may that be our story this week. That all we face and feel, you would forgive us when we stumble and wander, but restore us back to yourself through the Son of God who always intercedes for us and lives with us day by day. Amen.